Happy Monday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1991, uh, 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And, and, and I guess I'll take it. Uh, yeah, you can, you it, can do it. it. I always love uh, episodes where we get to have guests because we get to talk to some interesting people. And uh, we have an interesting person with us today. We have Mr. Chuck Myers from the USS Hornet Sea, Air, and Space Museum joining us. Uh, sir, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate you being here. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, this, th- we have you on uh, th- these uh, next particular two minutes because uh, we're going to be talking about uh, well, we're going to talk about the uh, the Shangri-La and the Iwo Jima, who are which are two uh, uh, Essex class uh, carriers, which really changed the you know they helped to change the course of World War II. And uh, gosh, they live you know they're they're still with us today, at least in museum form. Um, but they really were uh, revolutionary in uh, carrier operations in the Pacific and then around the world. Um, and you you were privileged to uh, to serve as a bridge officer on uh, on one of them, the uh, uh, the Fighting Lady herself. Oh, well, that's right. I was a I was an, an officer on the uh, USS Yorktown back in the day. It seems like a hundred years ago now, but uh, the Hornet kind of keeps it fresh for me as well. Yeah, that's they awesome. are they are am- amazing ships. I mean, the, the you know it's a it's a city at sea, and uh, you know the the Yorktown itself, the the one that you were on, uh, we you know we lost the first Yorktown. Uh, but when she came out in, I think was it was 1943, I think when she, when she was, uh, finally launched, uh, but th- that whole, that whole class, the Essex class, they were our, our first modern built for, you know, aircraft carrier, carrier operations that, uh, you know, it, it's just amazing how, how they worked and, and, you know, she certainly was a fighting lady, uh, out there. Well, and uh, even more amazing, perhaps, is that, uh, for example, uh, I don't recall exactly how many months it took to uh, to build the Yorktown, but I do know exactly how many months it took to build the Hornet, and it was 13. So if you can imagine building an aircraft carrier from the keel up and launching it in 13 months, uh, you know what this country was like in 1943. Wow, it's just, it's it's stunning. And j- just the... The size of them. how how uh, far are they bow, bow to stern? I, I I don't know what the length of the the Hornet is, for example. Well, they've changed over time, so there've been a lot of modifications. But uh, uh, at the flight deck level, uh, the Hornet is eight hundred ninety four feet long. So sometimes when I'm on the flight deck, I point across the bay to San Francisco and say, "You can see the Transamerica building." Uh, if you turn the Hornet on end, it is actually four stories taller than the Transamerica building, and that sort of gives people a perspective about you know, how big a, a an aircraft carrier of that era was. and <laughs> That's 20 stories shorter than the, than the Nimitz-class carriers, but still, it's pretty amazing. Wow. I, I mean, na- nowadays, the the ones that I'm more familiar with are like the, the smaller, the uh, the Arleigh Burke-sized uh, destroyers. Destroyers, you know? yeah. Yeah, and uh, they're, they're great, very nimble ships, but... Uh, you know, the, the age of carriers is still is still with us, and they're so... I, to say that they're uh, a city at sea is not an exaggeration. I mean, there's so much going on in uh, 
you know, on the, on the ship, just, you know, from working on the island down into the, down into the hold, it's, it, how many, what is the crew of, of an average Essex size uh, cruiser? Uh, during World War II, they were up to about uh, 3,500 men, depending on, uh, on circumstances. And, you know, that, that in and of itself is, is kind of startling to the guests that come aboard the Hornet. Uh, it's even more startling when you take the whole city concept and you say, okay, let's go down and visit the cobbler shop. So, you know, if you want your shoes repaired, we have one of those, you know, the tailor shop. Uh, huge laundry. I mean, really, it is a, a floating city at sea. It's, it's, it's quite uh, remarkable, and per particularly for guests who have no concept of that um, situation. Yeah, I, I can strongly recommend. By the way, if, if anybody hasn't seen it, the uh, uh, if, if you see the the 20th Century Fox movie, The Fighting Lady, which is pretty much a tour of uh, World War II era uh, Yorktown, uh, you do get to see all those different jobs. The bakeries where they're they're making hundreds and hundreds of loaves of bread just to exactly. just to serve breakfast every day, and it, it's it's mind boggling when you think about how much. How how much had it had to be done just to keep this uh, this ship going? The uh, uh, there's a there's a an amazing scene of uh, a, a tanker pulling up next to the ship and they're running they're running a hose line while there's while there's men tied to the deck trying, so that they're not washed away by the waves tied to the deck trying to move the hoses over to uh, to not refuel. On. On a carrier, we had multiple hoses coming across, uh, depending on the time frame, because you were pumping not only the black oil for the ship itself, but you were pumping aviation, gasoline, and jet fuel, uh, and sometimes other distillates. So you might have as many as three hoses coming across at any given point in time. It's quite yeah. an operation. And the, and the ocean doesn't hold still for any of that. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> wow. Uh, I and you're about 80 feet from each other, which is the other interesting part of it. Oh. So uh, people, um, you know, when you were a bridge watch officer, you had to be very careful when you were alongside an oiler because the, the, uh, an Italian gentleman by the name of Bernoulli told us, taught us about uh, what happens when you have uh, those kind of washes going uh, side by side with uh, the screws of the, of the oiler and the screws of the, of the carrier pumping stuff out and uh, so they have a tendency to want to come together at the sterns and you have to be very careful about that Oof. yeah wow. I, I i know people see a lot of uh, videos of like the blue angels and the thunderbirds flying uh wingtip to wingtip but it's got nothing on having these giant <laughs> these giant ships at sea with the you know with the with the waves rocking back and forth and no, trying no. to move fluids that are highly flammable between the two yeah, um, thankfully we didn't have to be that careful but uh, yeah. yeah it's interesting Wow. Well, uh, on this uh, on on this particular minute, we're talking. Uh, well, Jim Lovell is recalling his time uh, when he was uh, landing on the Shangri-La, which was uh, another Essex-class uh, carrier, and uh, and trying to find it in the dark. Uh, that you know his his uh, his lights went out, and uh, he he was having a hard time finding the ship. Um, but he al he also talks about how. Uh, Bi the bioluminescence of uh, creatures that live in the sea that, that light up when they're disturbed by, say, the wake of a ship. Uh, he could find his way. He could find his way back to the ship. Uh, you've experienced that, I'm sure, while you were doing bridge operations. Well, in a couple of ways, uh, you could uh, look astern, and uh, it's not always true, but um, often when you're in um, the Pacific, in certain areas of the Pacific, you get that phosphorescent sea life, and and the uh, the propellers churn it up until you have a wake that goes back that is phosphorescent for some period of time. You, 
one of the things I used to do when I was off duty, and it was you know early in the evening or just after sundown, I'd go out and stand on, on what we call the quarter deck, and that way you could also see the bow wave that was phosphorescent, and frequently you'd see dolphins or other forms of sea life, and I assume dolphins uh, would be jumping in that phosphorescent uh, bow wake, and uh, it was uh, an awe-inspiring uh, thing to, to watch. It was really fascinating. Wow. Uh um, when now, uh, what um, uh, what period did you serve on, on board the Yorktown? I, I reported to Yorktown in July of 1961. So uh, you know, I was relating to uh, what Jim Lovell was uh, talking about in his interview. Uh, he was flying a Banshee at the time, and the Banshee went out of service just about the time that I reported to the Yorktown. So its last days in the U.S. Navy were, was in 1961. Ah. Uh, when did you serve, uh, when did you leave the Yorktown? I left the Yorktown in 1963, so I was on board from 61 to 63. Wow, now, now is that, you were on board the same ship that uh, is now uh, a museum as well down in uh, Charleston, right? Uh, indeed I did, and I've been there several times since, uh, deja vu all over again. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first aircraft carrier I ever went on, and that, that was impressive, that's for sure. Well, come out and visit the Hornet, because uh, we've, uh, restored uh, a whole lot of the spaces, including some of those that we just talked about, like the Cabo shop and the Taylor shop, and we actually do docent tours of the Hornet. So sometime after this pandemic is over, make a stop in the San Francisco Bay Area and, and see the, the, the Hornet. Um, I love the Yorktown, but um, it doesn't quite have the, the same uh, level of restoration of spaces that the Hornet does. And in some ways, it has some some things that are really remarkable and better, like the the, the um, Medal of Honor uh, museum that's on the yeah. hangar deck of the of the Yorktown. But uh, in terms of uh, an authentically restored Essex class carrier, I think you'll find Hornet is is probably at the top of the list. Wow! And they they both have a a, a great tie into the space program, of course. Uh, Indeed. With <laughs> With the uh, Yorktown, Yorktown retrieved uh, our our buddy Frank Borman's ship, the uh, uh, Apollo Eight, Apollo Eight, on, it, right. on, on its return from space, and uh, and Hornet, gosh, at top of the fleet with uh, both Apollo Eleven and Apollo Twelve. So uh, the Hornet plus three and the uh, three more like before is uh, a great great models on that ship. And you can walk on the uh, the footsteps of uh, the first four moonwalkers, the Boy Scouts painted footsteps across Hangar Bay 2 to the mobile quarantine facility so you could actually sort of experience where they actually got off the helicopters and walked over to the MQF. Oh, oh wow. That's cool. Definitely on my uh, post-plague list of going, going to see. And uh, are, the, are the elevators still active? Can you Do, do they still function on, on the ship? We have uh, two that actually still function. So Elevator one and two both function, and we use those to get things up, heavy things up and down to the flight deck, including aircraft. Uh, we also have uh, an escalator that, that works uh, that was installed in the 1950s. Uh, so yeah, there are some uh, there are some working things. Some some of the uh, bomb elevators also work. Uh, so there's it's it's still in pretty good shape for a, a lady of 77 years. Yeah. Um. I, I I would never have pictured an ele an escalator on a on an aircraft carrier, but wow, that's, <laughs> that's pretty well. Cool. It was it was. Uh, I'll tell you why they put it on in uh, in the 1950s when they started flying jets. Um, 
they discovered that having moved the ready rooms where the pilots were briefed and debriefed down to the second deck from just below the flight deck, the, the pilots when they were trying to get uh, from the second deck up to the, to the flight deck with all the gear they had to wear uh, when they were flying jets that wasn't uh, necessary when they were flying prop planes, uh, they were, you know, I always describe them as they were sweaty and irritated by the time they got to the flight deck. So the Navy decided, well, what the heck, let's put an escalator on there. And so we have an escalator that goes up from the hangar deck to the flight deck, taking out three of those levels that they would have had to climb uh, if we didn't have the escalator. So basically they were back to having one ladder to climb and then they jumped on the, the escalator. It was just like having the ready room right under the flight deck. Wow, uh, it, it's 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 amazing. I mean, it's amazing the longevity of all. You know, I mean, these were started in in the mid '40s. And um, when did the Hornet finally leave service? Uh, 1970, June of 1970. So it was in uh, it was in the Mothball Fleet in Bremerton, Washington, for about 25 years after that. Oh, so it was just it was just about pulling out of service as uh, Apollo 13 was coming through. That's, and, uh, that's, uh, a, that's just about right. Yes. Yeah. And then its its sister ship, the uh, Iwo Jima, was uh, uh, was picking up was picking up uh, thirteen and uh, you know at, at the same time. So it's definitely the Essex class as a, as a group uh, really put in a lot of service, both you know both in terms of defense of our country and uh, collecting astronauts wherever they fell out of the sky. Um, it's an amazingly versatile ship. Uh, I I try to. I try to imagine what what would you what would you say it is that the Essex class ship what made it so so versatile how, you know in getting it getting it together so fast you think it was something they kind of slapped together and and got out to to fight in the Pacific but it seems to have been such a classic timeless plan for a ship that that it's been able to work for you know for decades uh, in active service. Well, the, uh, a lot of things were involved in in making it so uh, the. Uh, Essex-class carriers had the benefit of the, the design of the Yorktown-class carriers, which uh, preceded them, and that included the, the first Hornet and the first Yorktown, right. uh, both of which were sunk uh, during World War II. Uh, but it was designed in the in the mid to, to late 30s, uh, and we couldn't build them at the, at the time because there was still the 1922 uh, Naval uh, Convention uh, limiting the number of, uh, or the amount of tonnage, not the number of tonnage, the amount of tonnage that uh, various nations could uh, could uh, build. And so once that was over, uh, once the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, we had all uh, uh, bets off at that point in time. And so uh, the design of the Essex-class carriers from uh, the late 1930s uh, came into play. And the other thing that, that, that people need to remember is, okay, we built the Essex, that's uh, carrier number nine, and we were building the Yorktown, and we were building the, the Intrepid, and we were building the Hornet. But as things developed, uh, they found, oh, we really should do something s somewhat different. So we describe them sometimes as being cookie cutter, but they were cookie cutter with uh, reservations, and, th and those reservations are uh, if you think of a, of a bit better way to do this, let's implement that. So uh, there was some evolution over time. Uh, when we got to the Ticonderoga number 14, they started to be a little bit different in the in the way they were uh, in the way they were constructed. So they're not all identical by any stretch of the imagination. They are about 95 to 99 percent identical. 
during the war build, but uh, there were various innovations that, that took place over time. One of those, the obvious one, is radar. Radar improved so much over the course of the first couple of years of the war that uh, carriers had different radar antenna, et cetera, installed uh, periodically whenever they were in for a yard period. So those kinds of evolutions also applied to the, to the next set of builds of the Essex-class carriers. Wow, and uh, of course Hornet. Uh, I know this is this is right in uh, Chris's ballpark. But, uh, carrying the name of Hornet from you know on, onto onto the Essex class from the Yorktown class, uh, it's a great it's a great name in avi in naval aviation. Uh, yeah, the Doolittle yeah. being launched by the same named ship, um, which I, I was looking the other day. I was just looking at pictures of, of Hornet and that wonderful picture of uh, of all the uh, all the the twenty fives lined up. On on deck as they're leaving underneath the the Golden Gate Bridge, it's it's just it's astonishing to think the uh, the audacity of doing that, and then you know if, after lo losing the Hornet and coming out with a, a new generation of carrier uh, that could go out and fight even better, uh, it's it's amazing. Um, just well, just the, the timeline is is amazing to me. One of the things that uh, if you really want to get historical, and since I'm a history major, I will. Um, the, the names of aircraft carriers uh, up until the point in time when we started naming uh, after the chairman of the Armed Services Committee in the Senate or the <laughs> House or whatever, yeah. uh, <coughs> excuse me for my attitude, um, they were named after either previous ships or battles. So obviously Yorktown was named after a battle. Hornet was named after one of the first two ships in the Continental Navy. The Continental Congress bought a couple of sloops in 1775 and they named them Wasp and Hornet. And so I've always told uh, our guests that uh, either the Continental Congress had a strange sense of humor or they were oblivious to things. They sent two stinging ins insects out to fight the Royal Navy in 1775. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our Hornet in Alameda is actually the eighth Hornet um, that's been in service over time, all the way from 1775 through the Spanish-American War through all of the other conflicts that we've had over time, not during World War One, however, and then up to 1941 when the CV-8 was, was uh, commissioned, and then in 1943 when CV-12 was commissioned. Wow. What always yeah. amazed me was CV-8, you know, it was, I mean, it was basically a brand new ship when it was sunk. It was only like a year old. It was almost a, a year to the day of uh, its commissioning that it was sunk. Yeah. It, hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, it was built in October and sunk uh, a year later in October. Uh, yeah, right? it was commissioned in October and sunk in October at the Jeez. Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands. Yes. Yeah, I, I just interviewed a uh, uh, a veteran from the Hornet, uh, Richard. Nowatsky. Uh, yes, yeah, I just talked to him uh, uh, last week. What an amazing guy. Paul Allen Foundation is the uh, is the group that sponsored the research ship Petrol, and the Petrol found the uh, the sunken uh, CV-8, and Rich Nowatsky, who lives oh, 125 miles or so from Alameda up in the in the uh, Sierra foothills, uh, was down for the celebration of the uh, anniversary of the Doolittle Raid, and and uh, after Paul, after uh, Rich had told the CBS uh, reporter that if he got down there to his locker, there were two twenty bill, twenty dollar bills in his wallet, and he could have them if he could get to them, and so 
the Paul Allen Foundation uh, made a presentation to Rich at our last uh, event for the Doolittle Raid and actually gave him uh, a, a plaque that contained two contemporaneous uh, $20 bills. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, he didn't have to go back and find his forty dollars, and uh, <laughs> so. It, but, but he's he's quite a character. He's something over. Uh, he's around ninety-five, and as lucid. Uh, and Chris, you can probably attest to this. He's about as lucid as anybody that I've met recently. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he sounded like he was uh, a much younger man. That's for sure. It was. I actually thought I had the wrong number at first. I'm like, this can't be him. <laughs> He drives uh, himself yeah, down here from uh, from up in the foothills whenever we have an event that he's he's part of. He's really an amazing guy. He also yeah. wow. he also tells a story about uh, he was on the uh, he was on the Hornet when the Doolittle raid was uh, was launched, and uh, he met Jimmy Doolittle down in the Geedunk having ice cream, and and uh, he and along with another sailor volunteered to be his tail gunner, and and Doolittle got quite a kick out of that. Yeah, yeah, he told me that story. That's Did incredible. He? Yeah. Oh, what a neat guy. <laughs> wow. uh, Could you imagine having a front row seat to history on board that ship, whether it was on board these ships, whether it was, uh, you know, recovering a spacecraft from space, watching the Doolittle Raid, or he was the Battle of Midway. Like, I mean, all of it is just the, these ships led such fascinating lives. You know, one of the things that the docents have done recently is uh, we've we started uh, – trying to remember some of the things that happened to us during our service. And uh, and so we've kind of got a uh, the beginnings of maybe a Kindle book or something. But uh, you're exactly right, because you read the uh, the things that, that uh, these guys did. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, in, in my case, I watched the first live Polaris with a live nuclear warhead fired from, I was standing on the flight deck of the Yorktown watching the Ethan Allen fire the first live Polaris missile during the 1962 nuclear tests. And uh, also, uh, you know, a couple of days later, watched the first uh, detonation of a nuclear depth charge uh, fired by the destroyer Agerholm that was about five miles in front of the Yorktown. So, and, wow. and those are just a couple of things that I, I just happen to be around in, but you know, you you can almost not uh, avoid history if you've served on a on a aircraft carrier, whether it's Essex or whatever. Wow. Where where was that? Where was Yorktown during October of '62 during the Cuban <laughs> Missile Crisis? Where were you? Where were you about? <laughs> um, I'll have to, I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, I was actually uh, when Kennedy was making his speech, I was actually in in downtown Belmont Shore, which is a suburb of Long Beach. I was actually buying a new pair of black shoes. Uh, being a black shoe, it was appropriate. And uh, so <laughs> we uh, uh, we were told to uh, get back to the ship, and, and we, uh, we did an emergency sortie out of Long Beach the following day. And I'll never forget the, in the wardroom, uh, after we were out at sea for a while, uh, the air intelligence officer had a briefing for all of the officers uh, and in the wardroom itself, there was a big movie screen behind which there was a, a set of maps that you could pull down, like the movie screen. And then behind that was a was a set of green boards or blackboards, if you will. And after the air intelligence officer had had made his uh, pitch and told us what we were doing and why we were doing it or whatever, they lifted up all of those things uh, to, to display the the green board. And on the green board, somebody had drawn the outline of 
of the islands of Cuba and labeled it Cuba, like Kennedy pronounced it. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Wow. That's fantastic. Now, being on the Yorktown, you must have made the transit of the uh, Canal Zone a couple of times, I would think. No, we were always in the Pacific while I was on board, so... uh, Oh, okay. In the case of the of the Hornet, the Hornet was almost never in uh, the East Coast, except it went back there uh, just before the Korean War started to be refitted. And so it was on the East Coast when the Korean War uh, started and then actually came back after uh, Korea ended, uh, came back and, and did a uh, world tour going, uh, going west. So they went to... Uh, uh <coughs> actually went to the Suez Canal instead of the Panama Canal and went around the world that way and came back to uh, Alameda for its home port again. But I never wow. did the uh, I never did the Panama Canal, and it's one thing that I regret. I, I've, I've seen pictures of Essex-class ships going. Actually, I think there's one in, uh, in The Fighting Lady, and it was really hard to yeah. get them to fit through the locks. It was, you know, they, basically everybody had to inhale. And that's, <laughs> that's about right, yeah. They, put, they had to put down fenders instead of... Uh, uh, what they would normally have had a, a bit of, uh, of leeway on, on both sides, but they actually had to squeak through with fenders going down on the on the each side of the ship. Uh, just uh, it's just stunning to get, and, and you know, even when you think you, you think you understand the scale, but just putting putting that kind of stuff in is it it's it's amazing to think how how big these ships are and still make, making it around. Um, it, so how of of the uh, of the Essex that we have left there's are there six of them no now? there's that, four four Essex there's left four so you left. got the Intrepid in New York City you got the Yorktown in Charleston you've got the Lexington in Corpus Christi Texas and then you've got uh, Hornet here on the west coast we also have uh, down in San Diego you got Midway which was the next class after Essex so uh, there were only three of those built um, but uh, Midway is the is the remainder of uh, of that class of ships down in San Diego. So there's there's uh, f- five uh, aircraft carriers uh, that are museums at this point in time. Yeah, they're they're kind of difficult to display because you need to have a, a good deep harbor to to show them you off. You do in indeed. Yeah, you, we need to have about thirty feet at at uh, low low tide in order to keep the Hornet afloat. And you you obviously want to keep them afloat because otherwise you have the um, if they're sitting in place, then and then you know periodically hit the bottom, you're going to stress the the keel, and that's unfortunately part of what's happened to the midway. The midway didn't have enough water under it, and, and so as uh, low tide has occurred over the years, it's actually I understand it's actually cracked the keel for that reason. Oh, difficult. Wow. Well, uh, we've got more to talk about tomorrow, so let's let's come back with uh, with tomorrow's episode. We can we can chat some more about na- naval operations and and what it's like having a having an airport on top of a ship. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, for folks who have missed any of our previous episodes, and I know I know most of you haven't, but if you have, uh, join us on our big site Apollo thirteen minute dot com Apollo one three minute dot com. Uh, we've got all previous one hundred and five episodes there, or you can catch them on Spotify, Apple. Uh, podcasts or google play or any any place that you normally pick up a podcast we're probably on it uh if you'd like to reach out to us on social media we're always available at apollo 13 minute mission control on facebook or at apollo 13 minute on twitter uh but we'll be uh talking some more about uh, all this fascinating naval naval stuff that i'm sure jim lovell would <laughs> would, would love to talk about as well um, but it looks like we're coming up on uh loss of signal in about 30 seconds so we'll see you here tomorrow on the apollo 13 minute Thank you.